Well, good morning. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, we will be reading Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, about the birth of John the Baptist. If you could turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you wouldn't mind, I would ask that you could please stand for the reading of the word. Let's read together. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You may be seated. So this morning, there are a great many of you sitting in chairs right now, but why? Why are you sitting in that very chair that you're in right now? Some would say it's comfortable, or I don't want to stand, or some of you may even struggle to stand, which are all good reasons to go find a chair, but why are you sitting in that very chair? If you saw that that chair had a broken leg and thus its structural integrity compromised, would you sit in that chair? Well, no. 
Why? Because a chair's purpose is to hold you. And if it cannot fulfill that purpose, it is declared unusable, unsafe, and removed. So why are you sitting in that chair? Because you have faith in that chair's ability to hold you up. However, that faith is only temporary, isn't it? Why? Because everything in this world is temporary. Everything decays and wears out, including man. Chairs become worn out over time. Your car becomes worn out and breaks down over time. Plants grow, live, and die. Man grows old and returns to dust. So logically, if you can have faith in something temporary, like the chairs you're sitting in, because you know that you know that you know that it will hold you up when you sit in them, then if you knew that you knew that you knew that there was an eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing being that created existence itself, that created your very ability to decide what you put your faith in, and had the power to give you eternal life, then surely you would put every ounce of faith you had in that being, wouldn't you? And that's the thing. We do know that such a being exists. He gave us his word to show us who he is, and yet, ironically, we still doubt him, don't we? So in this passage, Luke shows us that we need to have faith, not doubt. Maybe you've been doubting or questioning God's ability to lead you. So why should we instead respond to God with faith and not doubt? The text gives us two reasons to respond with faith. First, we need to respond to God with faith because God is in control. Verses, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. But first, we'll go through the first four. The words of our text are, And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The first phrase, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile, is important to note. Typically, in this time period, history was passed down orally as they did not have printing technology. So trying to generate mass copies of the same story was not ideal. If it was written down, it had to be important. This phrase literally in the Greek means many have set their hand to, implying that many others have written accounts of the same thing Luke is writing about pointing to its importance. This narrative that Luke is writing about, the things that have been accomplished among us, these things are Jesus accomplishing God's plan during his ministry. The last word, us, refers to those who had experienced the effects of Jesus' ministry. So going on to verse 2, just as those who, have, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So these accounts including this narrative written by Luke, had sources who had seen Jesus' ministry firsthand, which lends to the credibility of what Luke is about to share to the reader. Let's continue to verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. The phrase, it seemed good to me also, shows Luke is joining himself with those who have written about Jesus in the past, so that he can further spread Jesus' story. The next phrase, having followed all things closely for some time past, 
shows that Luke wants the reader to know that he had put a lot of time and effort into studying and investigating the ministry of Jesus before creating this work. Luke did his homework. This wasn't just a collection of his own ideas and interpretations of who Jesus was and what he did. Luke looked for, listened to, and read every source he could put together so that he could put together an orderly account for the reader, who is in this case most excellent Theophilus. Who Theophilus is is unknown, but what we can tell from the rest of the narrative is that Luke was most likely writing to a Christian. We know that he is a Christian from verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What Luke is about to share with Theophilus is not necessarily something new. Its more likely purpose is to encourage Theophilus that what he believes is indeed true and not to doubt. Now that Luke has explained his purpose in writing this orderly account, he now begins the story by going back to the very beginning, the birth of John the Baptist foretold. Let's look at verses 5 through 17. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So in verses 5 through 7, Luke gives us the time period and introduces the characters of the first story of the Gospel of Luke. Herod, the king of Judea, we know reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Where exactly in Herod's reign does this story take place, we do not know. Luke now introduces a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. The division of Abijah was one of 24 divisions of priests that served in the temple. They rotated temple duties between each division. Every division would serve in the temple twice a year for about a week at a time. Then we have Zechariah's wife, who is described as coming from the daughters of Aaron. Moving on to verse 6, Luke describes them as righteous before God and even blameless. But when we get to verse 7, we find out they are without child because Elizabeth was barren. Nowadays, not having children isn't really a big deal as far as status and the like. But back then, if you didn't have children, you were disgraced, shamed even by your own people. It was thought that if you couldn't have a child, you must have committed some terrible sin to deserve barrenness. But didn't Luke just describe them as blameless? Well, as we're about to find out, God had bigger plans for Zechariah and Elizabeth. So let's keep reading. Verses 8 and 9. 
Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So from verse 8, we know it's his division's turn to serve in the temple. And verse 9 tells us that Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Now, when it comes to serving in the temple, every priest serves twice a year, as we said earlier. However, the specific job of burning incense for the daily offering required going into the holy place. And who did that job was decided by casting lots. Zechariah was one of 18,000 priests. A priest may get to serve in this position once in his lifetime with those odds, and Zechariah is chosen. So God is clearly in control of this situation and wanted Zechariah to be chosen so that, as we will see, God can reveal his plan for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. This was happening while Zechariah was fulfilling the task of burning incense, and this process typically lasted about an hour. Zechariah is now in the temple when we get to verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. For Zechariah, things could not be better as far as his career as a priest. For one, he has been given the once-of-a-lifetime honor to burn incense. And two, while fulfilling this task, an angel of the Lord appears. Let's keep reading verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. This is a typical reaction we see in the Bible when someone has an encounter with an angel of the Lord, and for good reason. When someone encounters an angel of the Lord, it's not just a visual experience. It had to be a very spiritual experience as well. To be a fallen human being in the presence of a divine being who was in direct contact with God. It would have had to have been overwhelming, to say the least. In verse 13, we have the typical response of encouragement to not be afraid. And then to add on to this already awesome experience for Zechariah, the angel gives him news he could have never dreamed of. Let's read it together, verses 13 through 17. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Wow. You want to talk about the experience of a lifetime? This is it. Zechariah has been given the once-in-a-lifetime task of burning incense in the temple and has encountered an angel of the Lord. He's also been given a son. And not only that, his son will be the one to make ready the people of Israel for the Lord's arrival. What an awesome experience for Zechariah. God had had a plan all along for Zechariah. It's like if a dad and his son went to a local high school football game, and let's say the son is 10 years old. They're watching, and the son says to his dad, Hey, Dad, I want to play football. Can I play with him? The dad proceeds to say, No, you can't play with him. To which the child replies, Why? I want to play with him. And then the dad says, Well, son, you're too young and too small to play with those high schoolers. You would likely get hurt. So the child becomes upset, 
that he can't play football with the high school football team. So when they get home, the child's dad says to him, I'll tell you what, if you train, eat right, and study hard, when you get to high school, you can join the high school football team. So the son begins going to the gym, eating right, and studies the playbook inside and out as best he can. And when he gets to high school, he's ready. He joins the team and becomes the best quarterback the high school had ever seen. Now, what would have happened if his dad had let him play football with no training at 10 years old? He would have been crushed, broken, and hurt, which is probably why high schools don't let 10-year-olds play. It's the same way with God. If he doesn't give us what we want the moment we want it, it's for a good reason. Like with Zechariah, if he had had a child like normal, then that's just it. It would have been normal. But instead, God did not give them a child when they wanted. He waited until they were advanced in years, as verse 7 says, which is important because Zechariah knew that biologically they could not have children, which we'll see in verse 18. The prayer that had been heard by God that Zechariah had probably given up on was now being answered years later. Why? To show his glory. Because that's the purpose of our lives. Not to bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to God. It is a testament to God's power and that he is in control of everything. And if God is in control of everything, what reason do we have as Christians to not put our faith and trust in him? As we have seen with the life of Zechariah, there's nothing but benefit for having faith in God. But we still struggle. Why? Instant gratification. When we don't receive the physical healing we think we need now, we doubt. When we don't receive the financial support we think we need now, we doubt. When we pray for the survival of a loved one, but Jesus takes them home, we doubt. And when the president we want to get elected doesn't get elected, we doubt. Or when your brother or sister won't turn to Christ, we doubt. You see, instant gratification kills our faith. Because if he granted every wish that we make, instead of leaning on him, trusting him, being faithful to him that he will pull us through, we would use him like a genie in a bottle. And life would be just fine and dandy, wouldn't it? But we're not here to live a fine and dandy life. We're here to trust him, put our faith in him, and even though we can't see the outcome, he will lead us through with a peace that is beyond understanding to an outcome we could have never imagined. Not only should we respond to God with faith because he's in control, but we should also respond to God with faith because God recognizes faith, not merely works. So let's pick up where we left off at verse 18 and read through to verse 25. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. 
So Zechariah has just received the best news of his life from an angel of the Lord during the highlight of his career. And then we get to verse 18. Zechariah doesn't believe. After all of that, instead of reacting with humble gratitude, he demands a sign for proof. As if the fact that an angel of the Lord appearing to him in the first place wasn't good enough. Reading this, I think, how could you not believe, Zechariah? There is an angel of the Lord before you, but then I think to myself, I'm the same way, aren't I? Aren't we all? How many times have we given up on a prayer to God because he didn't answer it when we wanted him to? You see, Zechariah is about to learn a lesson we could all learn as well. Let's keep reading verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. The angel of the Lord gives Zechariah his name to lend further credibility to his message and tells Zechariah this message was sent directly from God himself to reassure Zechariah of the truthfulness of this message. Although undeserved, in verse 20, Gabriel gives Zechariah a sign. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This sign is not only an act of grace, but also an act of judgment on Zechariah, as he will not be able to speak until the birth of his son, John. Looking at verse 21, And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at the delay in, his, in the temple. As we discussed earlier, the time a priest spent in the temple burning incense was typically an hour. And due to Zechariah's encounter with Gabriel, he had been inside for longer than normal, and the people were wondering at his delay. Verse 22, And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So as Gabriel promised, Zechariah would not speak until the birth of John, and that is fulfilled here. As normally, priests were expected to pronounce a customary blessing when they exited the temple, but he could not. As he could not speak to the people and could only make signs to them, they realized something supernatural had happened. Let's keep going, verse 23 through 25. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So Zechariah returns to his home with Elizabeth, and she conceives fulfilling God's promise to Zechariah. As to why she remained hidden for five months isn't clear, but as we see in verse 25, she rejoices over her pregnancy as she will no longer be shamed by her own people. Now the lesson Zechariah needed to learn here is twofold. A, God can answer prayers whenever he sees fit. And B, faith is not based on your status, but on your heart. You see, Zechariah had given up on God because he didn't answer his prayer when he saw fit. And he let his status as a priest and his knowledge of human biology justify himself questioning God, who in fact created human biology and was the one who put Zechariah there in the first place. Zechariah was at the highlight of his career, and he was probably feeling pretty good about himself in that moment. But although blameless, he had a heart issue that needed fixed, so God graciously humbles him. It's like when the rich man approached Jesus and he asked him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus tells him to follow his commandments, to which the rich man replies, I follow all of your commandments. And then Jesus says, then go and give all that you have to the poor and follow me. But instead of doing so, he walks away in shame. Not because he did all of the right things. There was a heart issue. The rich man had had more faith in his wealth than he did Jesus. In the same way, Zechariah had more faith in his idea of human biology than he did in God to do the impossible. Now, Zechariah, however, learned his lesson, whereas the rich man didn't. But even after reading these stories that clearly lay out the benefit of faith and the consequences of, of, of doubt, we still put our faith in the things of this world, in our own ability to, to fulfill our idea of being a Christian. Showing up to church every Sunday, tithing, being a deacon, or serving on the worship team, that doesn't determine how faithful you are to God. The Pharisees did all the right things. Zechariah did all of the right things. Works don't give you a higher status with God. No, God looks at the heart. All of those things that we do as Christians are good, and we ought to do them, but they ought to be a result of our faith in God. As Christians, we believe Jesus died for us. But let me ask you something. What did he die for? Jesus was flogged, whipped, spat on, This wasn't some scene from Hollywood where he was clothed and a little bloody. No, he was naked. He was beaten repeatedly. He was bruised, swollen, ripped with a cat of nine tails to the point where you could see his bare ribs. He probably couldn't carry the cross because it was resting on his bare ribs. And then he had thorns forced in his skull to the bone. And as if that's not already agonizing. And then nails driven through his feet and hands. And not only that, he was hung by them with his weight, pulling on those nails. Do you really think he went through all of that and then died so that we could doubt? No, he died and rose again so that we could have a faith so great that when he calls us to the unknown, we don't hesitate for a second. A faith so great when people walk by us, they notice there's something different about you because of your faith in God. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You can overcome any circumstance through Christ who strengthens you. To live is doubt. No, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who are we? We are Christians who believe that Jesus died and rose again so that our faith would be unshakable. So we're all here this morning, sitting in these chairs ever so faithfully. If we can have faith in a chair invented by a brain that God created, don't you think the least we can do is give God our faith? Let's pray.